Warmer, sunnier days are finally arriving. As outside is calling, Factor is here to make sure that however busy you get, your meals are taken care of, giving you all the energy and time to enjoy that weather. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So, no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and, oh yes, blackened salmon. Don't mind if I do. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine and give yourself time to focus on what makes you happy. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash danjones50 and use code danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code danjones50 at factormeals.com slash danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Before we start, just a quick warning that this episode contains descriptions of violence or sexual content that may not be suitable for all listeners. It's a bitterly cold midwinter in the Alps, and there's thick snow on the ground. The white powder squeaks and crunches beneath the feet of freezing men and animals as they trudge along the passes that lead through the mountains. When the wind picks up, it howls and bites, whipping a painful mixture of sleet, dirt and ice into their faces. The travellers are well attended to by servants and soldiers. They're prepared for the conditions, wrapped up in thick woolen cloaks and soft, warm animal furs, the best that money can buy. All the same, they've been on the road for weeks, trekking halfway across Europe in this miserable weather. It's been agonisingly slow progress. The frozen passes, thin air and steep slopes, reducing the pace to a handful of miles a day. The wood fires at night are barely enough to keep warm, and after a while, the cold gets into their bones. It's a tough journey for anyone to make, not least a 66-year-old grandmother. But Eleanor of Aquitaine has never been ordinary. She's crossing the Alps at Christmas time 1190 because she's on a secret mission. A mission of the highest diplomatic significance. A mission with the potential to change history. Because Eleanor is not travelling on her own. When she set off from her Duchy of Aquitaine back in the autumn, she rode down to the little northern Spanish kingdom of Navarre to meet with its king, Sancho VI. Sancho was expecting her, because for a while now he's been in contact with Eleanor's son, Richard the Lionheart, King of England. The two men have entered into a stunning alliance. Sancho will lend his support to Richard's military campaigns in the most southerly part of the Plantagenet Empire. In return, Richard will abandon his decades-old promise to marry the sister of the French king, Philip Augustus. And he'll marry Sancho's 25-year-old daughter, Berengaria. This may not sound like much, after all, we know that the daughters of medieval kings are shunted around the chessboard of Europe like pawns when they're barely out of childhood. Yet two things make this marriage unusual. 
One is the mismatch in status between Richard and Berengaria. It's not totally bananas for a Plantagenet to marry a Spanish royal. Richard's own sister, young Eleanor, was wedded to Alfonso VIII to become Queen of Castile more than 20 years earlier. But Castile is an A-list kingdom. Berengaria's home, Navarre, is very much C-list, barely more than a glorified city. So Richard is definitely doing Sancho a favour here, rather than vice versa. Even more unusual than that are the circumstances of the wedding itself. If Berengaria had been expecting to be gently chaperoned to one of Richard's plush castles, so she could chill watching Netflix while awaiting his return from the crusade, then she must have been crushingly disappointed. Instead, having dodged marriage until the age of 32, Richard has decided that he wants to get married right now. So that's why he sent his dear old mum, the only person he really trusts, to Navarre. Her job was to collect Berengaria and take her to find her husband-to-be. But as we heard last episode, Richard isn't exactly easy to pin down at the moment. The Lionheart is currently on his way to the Holy Land via southern France, the western coast of Italy and Sicily. En route, he's been fighting with peasants, Sicilians and, well, pretty much anyone who looks at him funny. Eleanor and Berengaria have to catch up with him. And the most direct way to Sicily, when the winter seas are rough, is to start on land, going straight over two mountain ranges. That's how the two women have come to be on this long, cold, exhausting winter trek from Navarre. Over the Pyrenees, into the Alps, and down through Italy towards the Straits of Messina, where they can cross over to Sicily. What's more, they know that when they arrive, they're going to be right at the centre of a full-blown diplomatic incident. Berengaria is living, breathing, I didn't like it so I didn't put a ring on it, proof that Richard is not going to marry his official fiancée, the French king's sister, Alice. The cat will be well and truly out of the bag. The Third Crusade is about to get spicy. I'm Dan Jones, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is History. Season 2 of A Dynasty to Die For. Episode 3, Here Comes the Bride. In the long history of Queens of England, Berengaria of Navarre is a bit of a nobody. Compare her, for instance, to Anne Boleyn, Queen Victoria, or indeed Eleanor of Aquitaine. Poor old Berengaria is more of a pub trivia question than a national treasure. But when you consider the adventure she goes on from 1190, she really should be better known. A race for hundreds of miles, crossing two mountain ranges to catch up with a sword-swinging warmonger isn't the usual prelude to a marriage in the Middle Ages, or, for that matter, any other time. Yet Berengaria steps up. It would be amazing to have the transcript of her conversations with Eleanor as they slog their way over the Alps. So, what's Richard like? 
My boy Richard? Oh, he's a fine young man. I mean, lively, I suppose you could say. Lively? Yeah, lively. As in psychopathically driven, obsessed to the point of mania with grinding his enemies into the dirt, rather arrogant, and extremely violent. Oh, he sounds... lovely. Sadly, such transcripts don't exist. We don't know if Eleanor and Berengaria hit it off personally, or whether they couldn't stand each other. What we do know is that when the expedition finally reaches the southern tip of the Italian mainland in March, they send word across to Sicily that they're here, and that Richard ought to come and pick them up. Then they wait to see what the fallout will be. As it turns out, the response to Berengaria's arrival is surprisingly muted, because the French king Philip Augustus has finally accepted the inevitable. He's come to terms with the fact that if Richard hasn't married his sister Alice after 20 years of engagement, then it isn't going to happen now. Philip hasn't totally come to that conclusion of his own accord, of course. He's been helped along by Richard, who finally sat Philip down to have the conversation. He spelled out his problem with the marriage in no uncertain terms, that his predatory dad had repeatedly taken advantage of Alice. He claims he has witnesses who will go public with their testimony if needed. And he counts on the French king not wanting to drag his poor sister's name through the mud in public. As a sweetener, Richard offers Philip a tasty cash settlement to release him from his vow to marry Alice. Philip is still far from happy about all this, though. By this stage, he's just about at the end of his tether with Richard. It's not just the wedding thing. For the last four or five months in Sicily, Richard has been driving him bonkers. First, there was the conquest of Messina and the bullying of Tancred, king of Sicily, which we heard about last episode. Philip was outraged that Richard started treating Messina like it was an English conquest, and demanded that Richard's flags be taken down from the city walls. Then there's Richard's annoying way of handing out cash, food and treats to all the crusaders who were in Sicily. He raised vast sums for his crusade, and now he's determined to flash it about, in a way that Philip simply isn't. It makes Philip look like a tightwad, rather than the more experienced and senior king he likes to think he is. On top of that, Richard has fallen out with one of Philip's favourite French knights. It sounds almost funny. In fact, it definitely is funny. One day, they're all out for a ride in the country, and they bump into a peasant carrying bundles of sticks. Knights being knights, they grab the sticks and organise a mock tournament, bashing each other and messing around. Except Richard isn't capable of having a mock fight. He gets into it with this knight of Philip's, whose name is William de Bar. There's a bit of previous between them, and their play fight quickly turns nasty. Richard loses his rag and starts screaming at William, calling him every name under the sun, and then telling him he's banned from the crusade. He'll only back down when all Philip's knights and the French king himself agree to grovel on their knees and apologise to him. Thanks to fiascos like this, by the time news breaks that Berengaria is in the area, 
Philip is well and truly done with Richard. He briefly tries to block their passage from the mainland, asking Tancred to stop them from landing on Sicily. But Tancred won't play ball. He was both thoroughly bullied by Richard and then buttered up with a gift, supposedly the legendary sword of Excalibur, so he's determined to stay well on the English king's good side. And by the way, if you want to hear more about fact and fiction when it comes to Excalibur, do tune in to this week's bonus episode. Out of options, the day before Berengaria gets to Sicily, Philip jumps on a ship and leaves. This isn't an episode of keeping up with the Crusaders. He's not waiting around to endure an embarrassing and dramatic showdown. He's going to go on ahead to the Holy Land without Richard and take his chances with Saladin. Even that monster can't be worse than the Lionheart. All this means that when Eleanor and Berengaria get to Sicily on the 30th of March 1191, the air is clear. Richard is there to meet them both off the ship. He throws his arms around his mother, Eleanor, and immediately dives into a long conversation with her. He reintroduces her to her own daughter, Joan, the one he rescued from Tancred. Eleanor hasn't seen Joan since she was sent off to be married at 12 years old. But Eleanor doesn't get long to catch up with her family. After her hundred-mile mountainous odyssey, she only gets three days of rest, before she has to jump on another ship and head back north. She's slated to pop into Rome to represent Richard at a major double whammy, the coronation of a new pope, who will in turn then crown a new German emperor, Henry VI. But even more pressingly, Eleanor's got wind that her youngest son, John, is doing what he does best and stirring up trouble in her and Richard's absence. She needs to get back to the Plantagenet Empire pronto. So she leaves young Berengaria behind with her new husband-to-be. It's not totally clear what Richard makes of her or what she makes of Richard. Presumably, the whole thing is a bit of a blur. And it's about to get even blurrier. Because now she's told that in fact, after all that, they're actually not getting married. Or at least, not yet. Richard tells her that it'll be boring getting married here during Lent. The church basically bans all fun for 40 days, so they won't be able to organise a proper knees-up to celebrate. No, he's got a better plan. There's no need for her to even unpack, because in a few days he and she and her soon-to-be sister-in-law, Joan, are going to get on a ship and sail a thousand miles east to an island called Cyprus. They can have the wedding there. It'll be a laugh, assuming they don't get shipwrecked or kidnapped or raided by pirates along the way. Come on, girl, don't look so miserable. This is how a real crusade goes down. Berengaria must be wondering what the hell she's got herself into. And she hasn't seen the half of it yet. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? 
Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either, and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When Richard's massive fleet sails out from Sicily on the 10th of April, 1191, it's an impressive sight. Ropes creak, sailors bellow to one another, and a gentle spring breeze ruffles the passengers' hair. There are more than 200 ships carrying 17,000 people, along with siege engines, horses, weapons, food, water, and piles of gleaming treasure. Richard's bride-to-be, Berengaria of Navarre, and her new chaperone, his sister Joan, are given berths on one of the biggest and most stable transporter ships. Richard himself is aboard a different vessel, which has a great lantern burning on it during the night, so that the rest of the fleet can follow. But after just three days at sea, disaster strikes. Huge storms blow up and scatter the ships meaning that when Richard arrives to the first scheduled stop, the island of Crete, he finds that his sister and Berengaria are, well, missing, along with two dozen other ships. On top of that, Richard hasn't quite found his sea legs. He's feeling awful, and when his ship moves on to Rhodes, 12 days after they originally set out from Sicily, he's in a thoroughly foul mood. This doesn't get any better when he finally hears news about what's going on with his missing ships. They've managed to get to Cyprus, but not all in one piece. Several have been wrecked on the southern coast of the island. Their passengers are drowned, and their cargoes raided by the locals. Mercifully, the ship with Joan and Berengaria aboard is still afloat. But the ruler of Cyprus, a petty tyrant called Isaac Ducas Komnenos, promptly announces that he will not let them land. What's more, he's fortifying the beach at Limassol, giving a strong impression that he's going to forcibly resist anyone who tries to come ashore. 
the Cypriots and the Crusaders are nominally on the same side. After all, everyone's a Christian. But Isaac Dukas Komnenos is a nasty piece of work, known for raping, mutilating and torturing his people. And what he's saying sounds very much like fighting talk. How does Richard respond to fighting talk? He goes into beast mode. Which in this case means sounding the horns of war and leading his troops in an amphibious invasion of the beach, saving Private Ryan style. His men, who've been kicking their heels all winter, now charge off landing craft through the shallow waters and up onto the sand. The opposing forces try to fend them off, but are overwhelmed by the Crusaders, who lay into them with swords and lances, crossbow bolts and arrows. The defenders try to resist, but the Crusaders have huge numbers and a very strong example to follow. Richard, of course, is the first one off the boat and gets stuck in from the front. In the end, the people of Limassol put up barely any more resistance than the Sicilians did at Messina the previous autumn. The Crusaders take the beach, then they assault and take the town. Next, for good measure, Richard decides he's going to take the whole of Cyprus. In the first week of May 1191, he brings in his entire army and sends it swarming across the island, putting the fear of God into the Cypriots. They target every major city and start a hunt for the man who dared defy them, Isaac Dukas Komnenos. The tyrant of Cyprus now realises, just a little too late, that he's made a big mistake. His modest forces have no chance against the descending hordes of crusaders. Isaac sends word to Richard that he's willing to surrender, so long as he's not clapped in irons. Richard replies, surprisingly mildly, telling him not to worry, he'd never do that to a fellow ruler. He waits for Isaac to crawl out from his hiding place, while in the meantime riders and sailors secure all the major coastal cities on the island. What all this means is that in just ten days, Richard has effectively conquered Cyprus, and is making plans to turn it into a crusader kingdom in its own right. From this point on, generations of crusaders will be able to use Cyprus as a base from which to attack people like Saladin on the opposite coast of Syria and Palestine. Oh, and it also means Richard's sister and his new fiancée can finally come ashore. Which reminds him, he's supposed to be getting married. So, on the 12th of May, Richard does something he's strenuously avoided for his whole life. He and Berengaria of Navarre stand before the altar at the Chapel of St George in Limassol and are pronounced man and wife. Berengaria is crowned Queen of England. Who knows, one day she might even go there. Two weeks after that, Isaac Dukas Komnenos is finally captured. Despite Richard's assurances, he tried to wriggle out of his surrender and hide up in the mountains. But Richard, relentless as ever, gets him in the end. 
When Isaac's taken by the crusader force, he desperately reminds them of Richard's promise not to clap him in irons. Don't worry, say the crusaders, we know all about that. They present the vanquished Isaac with his chains, specially made from silver, and clap him in those instead. With that, Cyprus is firmly in Richard's hands. Not that he wants to hang on to it himself. He announces a heavy property tax, orders all the natives to shave off their beards because, well, he can, then sells the island to the Knights Templar, the permanent crack troops of the Crusader world. Once Cyprus is dealt with, Richard turns his gaze on his next target, the hottest war zone in the whole region, the city of Acre. Located on the coast of modern Israel, it's the most important merchant city in the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Saladin's men hold it after the Sultan took the city a few years earlier. But the Crusaders have it surrounded and under heavy bombardment. The most senior Western leader there is Richard's old pal Philip Augustus. It really wouldn't do to let the French king conquer it and take all the glory before Richard gets there. So the crusade bandwagon starts up again. Richard, his new wife Berengaria and his now battle-hardened warriors pile back onto their ships and set out for their date with destiny. At long last, Saladin is in their sights.